0: Hello. Thank you for wel- welcoming me to, uh, to London. It's been wonderful to, to be here. We are living in a very exciting time. Uh, we're evolving as a society. Uh, from viewing people with conditions like autism, dyslexia, and ADHD solely through the lens of pathology, in other words, viewing them only through uh, the light of the things that they can't do or struggle to do, to seeing these conditions as also having positive attributes and strengths that can really uh, help our communities, our schools, and our workplaces if we are able to provide the appropriate supports, accommodations and research to help them face the challenges that they face in in their daily lives and the challenges that their families face. Uh, In other words, we're evolving from viewing these conditions merely as disorders uh, and respecting the people who have been labeled with them as different, not less as Temple Grandin, who is perhaps the most famous autistic person and a leading industrial designer puts it. Uh, In the late 1990s, an Australian sociologist named Judy Singer coined the term neurodiversity uh, to describe this approach. Judy's mother uh, was on the autism spectrum and her daughter also was. She hoped that the term neurodiversity would spread like a rallying cry to mobilize Uh, the community of people who think differently as phrases like gay is good and black is beautiful and sisterhood is powerful had mobilized other marginalized and stigmatized communities in the years before. She was inspired uh, to coin the term after reading a book by uh, a Jungian analyst in London actually called Disability, Whose Handicap? which pointed out that people with physical disabilities are only as disabled as the environment fails to meet their needs. Imagine if we had put off the issue of civil rights until the genetics of race were sorted out, delayed the legalization of gay marriage until the causes of homosexuality were pinned down, and denied wheelchair users access to public buildings and schools while saying, someday, with the help of science, everyone will walk. That's how we've been treating conditions like autism, framing them as baffling medical enigmas, puzzles to be solved with very expensive genetic research, rather than addressing the very basic day-to-day lives of autistic people and their families. Viewed as forms of disability that are relatively common, rather than as baffling medical enigmas, conditions like autism are not so puzzling after all designing appropriate forms of support and accommodations is not beyond our capabilities as a society as the history of the disability rights movement proves. The core principle of neurodiversity that we should build on the strengths, aptitudes, and special interests of people with autism and other learning differences while accommodating their needs is not, as people often feel, a new idea. In fact, it's the oldest idea in autism research, but it was forgotten for most of the 20th century, as I discovered while writing Neurotribes. Now, one of the first things that I learned while writing Neurotribes was that the basic timeline of autism's discovery, as it has been reiterated in thousands of textbooks and Wikipedia, was incorrect. This is the incorrect timeline that has been accepted as truth for many decades. Uh, Autism was allegedly discovered in 1943 by a child psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins Hospital named Leo Connor. He wrote a paper describing 11 patients who were significantly disabled. Um, He would go on actually to uh, blame autism on bad parenting, which had a devastating effect on autistic people and their families for generations. Uh, What I discovered was that the man who was considered a footnote to Connor's great discovery, a guy named Hans Asperger, was actually the guy who discovered what we now call the autism spectrum in the mid-1930s. Hans Asperger, there on the left, um, was working in a clinic called the Children's Clinic in the University of Vienna Hospital. It was an incredibly progressive clinic. It wasn't just a place where uh, people would come to bring their children to be screened and diagnosed. Uh, It was a place for the children to live and to learn for usually about a month. There was art on the walls, it was a very humane environment. Uh, The staff had a very um, open-minded approach to the conditions that they were studying. Uh, In fact, one of uh, Asperger's assistants said that the virtue of having the children live there was that she could observe the children down to their very toes, even when they were just playing or relaxing. The children put on plays. Asperger would read poetry to the children. Uh, The children also had classes in history and geography. And what they learned was that autism is a very, very broad condition. That some people have autism would never be able to live without significant daily support. While others, uh, well, there was one uh, patient of Asperger's who Uh, was very very impaired when he was a child, but he started drawing triangles and circles in the sand when he was two. His mother supported that and allowed him to uh, get advanced tutoring in math as he got older. He eventually went to university where he found a flaw in one of Isaac Newton's proofs and became an assistant professor of astronomy while remaining very autistic. So Asperger and his colleagues had a very very broad and inclusive view of what we now call the autism spectrum. And I'm going to show you two images that no one has ever seen. This is actually kind of historical. These are the roundtable discussions uh, among Asperger and his colleagues that I just, got, I just got these images from Asperger's daughter, Maria, who's carrying on his work in Vienna. And it was at these roundtable discussions that their very broad and inclusive concept of the spectrum was developed. And the only problem was that they were working in Vienna. So in 1938, the Nazis marched in to annex the country for the German fatherland. And one of the things that they did was to pass genetic hygiene laws that actually targeted children with all forms of disability. And in fact, the Nazis launched a secret extermination program against disabled children that became a practice run for the Holocaust against the Jews. And so, several of Asperger's colleagues were Jewish. And it has long been believed that the two discoveries of autism by Connor and Asperger were independent. But what I discovered was that actually George Frankel and Anni Weiss, who were sitting at the table with Asperger in the previous image, were Jewish. They had to leave Austria they were rescued from the Holocaust by Leo Conner. Oh, sorry. Who was a child psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins Hospital. So when Conner saw his first autistic patient in 1938 and didn't know what to make of him, he sent him to the guy who had been Asperger's chief diagnostician, George Frankel. And George Frankel knew exactly what to make of him because they had been seeing hundreds of autistic children at all levels of ability. The only problem was that Conner framed autism very, very differently than Asperger had, uh, whereas Asperger thought autism was common and whereas Asperger and his colleagues talked about autistic intelligence as a special set of abilities uh, that could really benefit society. In fact, Asperger had said, It seems that for success in science and art, a dash of autism is essential. Um, Connor tended to view his patients' special abilities through the lens of pathology. So, uh, Connor had one patient who could identify 18 symphonies after hearing just a few bars before he turned two. They would play, uh, you know, just a few bars, and the kid would say, Beethoven. But whereas Asperger would have seen that as an expression of the child's autistic intelligence, Connor saw it as the uh, sort of a desperate cry for love from cold and unaffectionate parents. And whereas Asperger had seen autism as common, Connor framed the condition as very, very rare. And Connor became the world's leading authority on autism. He never mentioned Asperger's work except for a dismissive reference in the 1970s when most of the damage had been done. Whereas Asperger had seen autism as genetic, Connor blamed it on what he called refrigerator parenting. And as a result, parents who I spoke to were told to put their children in institutions, quietly remove their pictures from the family albums, and move on. And parents were uh, loath to even mention in public that they had an autistic child because it was tantamount to admitting that they themselves were mentally ill and had caused autism in their children. So it was a terrible, terrible shadow that was cast on autistic people and their families for two generations. What changed all that was a woman in London named Lorna Wing. She was a cognitive psychiatrist who had a profoundly disabled autistic daughter named Susie. And she was asked by someone from the NHS to find uh, as many autistic kids as she could in Camberwell. And so she and a colleague went out and literally pounded the pavement and looked in clinics and special schools. And what she found was that Connor's definition of autism was way too narrow and really underestimated the prevalence of autism. And when she saw these children who were not, you know, invariably devastated, as Connor had described them, but actually loved their parents very much, would help their mom with the dishes, and then retire to their favorite room to listen to their favorite record over and over again. She she thought to herself, why has no one noticed these children before? And then she came across a reference to Asperger's uh, paper that had come out a year after Connor's that Connor had never mentioned. Uh, Luckily, her husband spoke German, so he was able to translate it for her, and she saw that Asperger had seen exactly what she was seeing in the cam- in Camberwell in the 1970s. And she worked quietly behind the scenes to broaden the definition of autism so that other families like hers could get the help that they needed. And uh, that was also when, by the way, the number of diagnoses started uh, going up steeply and that was when Andrew Wakefield came along to blame it all on vaccines. But it was actually Lorna Wing, who had opened the floodgates of diagnosis so that families of hers could could get help. What's happening now is that we are relearning the living truth of autistic intelligence as well as discovering the special strengths of people with ADHD and dyslexia. And I was just at an event uh, called Autism at Work run by one of the largest software makers in the world, SAP. And uh, they have committed to hiring hundreds of autistic programmers in the next few years. And uh, the guy who's the head of the U.S. division of this program told me that one of the reasons why he was inspired to do it was that he was driving with his daughter through the American Southwest, and his daughter was very autistic and lost speech when she was two and gradually regained it. And suddenly he realized in the middle of the desert that he was running out of gas. And so he, he, he plugged a request into GPS to find out where the next gas station was and it said it was 35 miles away, they'd never make it. And suddenly his daughter said, no, there's a gas station just 10 miles ahead. And he wondered how she could possibly know that. And then he realized that they had taken the same trip when she was a baby and she remembered exactly where the gas station was. So as we move ahead, into the 21st century and face really significant global scale problems like climate change, income inequality, intolerance for people who don't fit uh, the standard gender definitions. We need all kinds of minds working together in society to help solve those problems. An autistic person named Zosia Zaks once said, we need all hands on deck to right the ship of humanity. So. Thank you for helping to create that world that will be a better place for autistic people and their families.